0: You may follow along in your bulletins or your Bibles. Today's teaching passage is the book of Colossians, chapter one, verses one through eight. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, Gracious Father, we do praise you. We thank you today for uh, your marvelous grace to us. Uh, We don't deserve it, uh, but you have been kind to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you have brought us out of death into life, out of darkness into your light. Uh, and Lord, we pray now this morning as we come to your word, as we, uh, we sit under it, that your Holy Spirit would work through it and speak to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would be the preacher here this morning and that you would work in each of our hearts and each of our minds uh, to turn all of our attention to you, that we would love you more than we love anything else. And so Lord, would you do a great work today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Brins, will you please be seated. Uh, and as you sit, uh, do uh, please make sure your bulletins or your Bibles are open uh, to that reading there from Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we are beginning a new uh, series this morning in the letter of Colossians, uh, the opening of which we just heard read to us a few moments ago. And as we come to this new series this morning, we're uh, transitioning out of a short series that we did during the month of January in the book of Acts. And 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 this move that we're now making from Acts to Colossians, uh, it seems to me, is an appropriate transition uh, because the existence of a church in Colossae to whom this letter was written is, of course, the fruit of the Apostle Paul's missionary work that was recorded for us in the book of Acts. Uh, This particular church was founded during Paul's third missionary journey into this region, uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, probably sometime around the year 53 A.D., It's not that Paul himself went to Colossae, in fact we know that he hadn't at the time of this writing because he mentions in chapter 2 that he's never seen these Colossians face to face. And thus this church came into existence because others from Colossae had come to where Paul was in nearby Ephesus and then had taken the gospel back to Colossae, out of which this church then was ultimately formed. And in fact this opening section of this letter tells us precisely who that was. Uh, It was this man, Epaphras, that we read about here. Uh, Epaphras was a resident of Colossae. He had, it seems, traveled to Ephesus. He heard the Apostle Paul teaching there. Uh, Epaphras was converted. He went back to his home of Colossae, where he then began telling others about the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And then out of that, a new church was formed. And you really must get into your mind that previously... Uh, Prior to the year 53 AD, there was no church in Colossae. Uh, There were people who resided in Colossae. Uh, There were people who called that city their home, but there there was no church. There were no Christians that we know of. And yet now, as we read here in these opening verses, some of the residents of Colossae can now be referred to as saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, Indeed, as we read here, there are now people in Colossae who are now known for their faith in Jesus and their love for other Christians. And again, I want to say to us that we need to get our minds around that. Uh, We should not take that for granted. In fact, we should very much want to consider the question, how does that happen? How was it that some people no longer simply resided at Colossae, but now resided in Christ at Colossae. Because that's an extraordinary reality. As we'll see over the next several months as we work our way through this short letter, to be in Christ is a defining, transformative reality for the person of whom that's true. Uh, To be in Christ is to have a whole new existence. Uh, It's a whole new, new life, a whole new way of being. It's to have the very life of Jesus become our life. It is to have died with Jesus. It is to have been raised with Jesus. And so how does it happen that some people in this city, in the ancient Roman world, become those who are in Christ at Colossae? Well, in fact, this is part of why this letter was written. It was written to help these Christians understand what had happened and the significance of it all. And as we'll see as we work through these eight verses here today, that at the heart of this passage, and really at the heart of this whole letter, is that the kind of transformation that's been experienced by these residents at Colossae takes place through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit as the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is heard and believed. this point, in fact, stands... Uh, at the very center of our text here this morning. Just look with me, if you will, at that sentence that starts in the middle of verse 5. Paul writes there in the middle of verse 5, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. So that's the center of the passage, it's the the main point of the text, it's the answer to the question of how did this in Christ reality take hold of these people at Colossae. And so as we come to this study here today and as we consider the relevance of it to our own lives as those who are at New York City, uh, my hope is that we'll see the description of this community at Colossae and we'll think to ourselves, you know, that looks like a wonderful community. I would like our community to look like that. I would like to know and experience the wonderful things that they were experiencing. I mean, after all, is there any among us who doesn't want more grace, more peace, more faith, more love, more hope in our lives? Is there any among us who doesn't want a more fruitful life? And these are realities that we should desire. These are realities that we do desire. So, let's look a little bit more closely here at this text. Let's see how all these things come together. Uh, three points we'll consider this morning. What exactly was taking place in the lives of the people here in this community? Uh, how exactly was it being produced in their lives? And why exactly is Paul writing to tell them about these specific things? First, uh, we'll spend most of our time on this first point. First, what exactly was happening in the lives of these people at Colossae that's so encouraging to the Apostle Paul and is the cause for him giving constant thanks to God for them. Let's pick up with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So to begin with, Paul identifies these people as being saints. Uh, Biblically, to be a saint isn't to be a Christian who's extra good and has earned some extra points with God. Rather, to be a saint uh, is indeed to be a Christian because to be a saint is to be included in God's holy people who have been set apart for him. So, for those of you here this morning who love Jesus and who trust Him as your Lord and your Savior, you, dear brother and sister, are a saint. Uh, That's your Christ given identity. Because of Jesus, you belong to God. You are a saint. Now, you see, there is an identity to truly celebrate and take joy in. Of all the things that might define you and be said of you in this world, there's nothing better or more significant than that. You are a saint. Uh, For our teenagers who are here this morning, Uh, this is who you are if you have put your trust in Jesus. This is the identity that ultimately defines you. You are a saint. And if you're a saint, you're part of the family of God whose existence is defined as being in Christ. That's why Paul refers to them here as faithful brothers, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, it's It's because to become a Christian is to become part of God's family. And so as all of us look around this room, well, friends, this is your family. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And thus rightly, we speak of God, just as Paul does here in verse 2, as our father. Uh, That's what's happened to these residents of Colossae. Uh, They have this whole new identity. They become part of a new people. They become part of a new family, God's people, God's family. But, of course, it's not simply this new identity that's made Paul so grateful here as he writes this. It's also the fact of what's actually being produced in their lives. Specifically, Paul is giving thanks, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So these are people who, as an expression of their new identity in Christ, are people who are marked by faith and by love. Now, it's critical we observe that this isn't any old generic faith or any old generic love. Uh, But it is, first of all, quite specifically, faith in Christ Jesus. So again, it's not just any sort of faith. Uh, Rather, Paul here is thankful for the fact that they put their faith in Christ. And so it's the object of their faith that Paul celebrates, which, of course, is what makes Christian faith genuine faith. Because understand, there's nothing saving or commendable about faith itself. No, it's the object of our faith that ultimately matters, and specifically, it's the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that ultimately matters. It's what Paul's going to go on to explain later in chapter 1, that Jesus is the very image of God, that Jesus is God himself. That Jesus has died in the place of anyone who turns from their sin and puts their trust in him alone. And he's done it, says Paul, later in this chapter, in order to reconcile us to God. To make peace between us and God. And so this is the faith of the Colossians for which Paul gives thanks. And then secondly here, Paul's thankful for their love. Okay, so this isn't a loveless kind of Christian faith. This, This isn't orthodoxy without charity Uh, Because what the Word of God celebrates here isn't just good words professing faith, it's that faith actually then manifesting itself in good works for others. And specifically, it's the good being done to other Christians, again, the saints, uh, the people of God who belong to God's family because of his grace to us in Jesus. And so Paul gives thanks that this kind of love and generosity and commitment to one another is taking place among the Christians at Colossae. Now, friends, we should note one of the implicit points here in this recognition of their faith and love. And that's the simple point, that it can be recognized. In other words, it's evident. You know, it's visible, it's, it, it's vocal. So while, yes, faith and love are very personal matters, uh, and they must absolutely exist deep within our own mind and heart, nonetheless, they're anything but private. Uh, and they certainly aren't meant to be kept secret. The way we talk, the way we live, the way we relate to others is to be visibly changed. This is as you think about your own life. is there a tangible expression to your faith and love that can be seen and celebrated by others. You know, one of the ways that our love in particular will be evident for others to see is that it will be a love for all the saints. Uh, not just the saints who look like us, Not just the saints who vote like us. Not just the saints who have the same accomplishments as us. I I can hardly imagine the Apostle Paul would have been so grateful for that kind of selective love. Uh, Rather, it is a love, as he says here, for all the saints. Now, connected to this faith and love is one of the great other virtues of a life in Christ. And that's hope. Verse 5. And the hope which is being referred to here isn't simply... An attitude of hope. So he's not celebrating the fact that the Colossians are merely hopeful. No, the hope here is specific content. It's it's what they're hoping for. Uh, Namely, it's the hope laid up for you in heaven. And the idea there is that you have a hope that's reserved for you in heaven. Uh, It's guaranteed for you in heaven. It's, It's laid up for you there. Now the question, of course, is what is this hope that's guaranteed for the Colossians in heaven? Well, the rest of this letter, as we work through it over the coming months, will help us to better understand this. So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 23, Paul will refer to the hope of the gospel. A few verses later, in verse 27, he'll give this hope even more definition when he speaks of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, he'll go on to say, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Christ in glory. If we put all of that together, then what we come to understand is that this heavenly hope that the Bible is referring to here is nothing less than the joy of being with Christ Jesus himself for eternity. It is a Christ-centered hope. And it's not only the Apostle Paul who speaks of this. You can see this emphasis in other parts of the New Testament as well. Most notably, the Apostle John in 1 John 3 writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Okay, so listen, if you're a Christian, that's your great hope. Your great hope is that you will see Jesus face to face when he comes again, and you will spend eternity with him. You will spend eternity with your Savior who gave his life for you. You will spend eternity with the immortal God of glory who's filled with beauty and truth and goodness. You will rejoice forever in his presence. And that hope is guaranteed for you in heaven. It's laid up for you there. It's it's reserved for you. You, the saints, the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, at New York City, at wherever you live, this is the hope laid up for you. It's a marvelous hope. And so it's this Christ-centered hope, this, this hope of glory to see Jesus face to face that Paul connects to faith and love. And in fact, did you notice that he connects this hope in such a way that he's very clearly saying that this hope that they have is actually the basis for their faith and their love. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. In other words, it's the certainty what God has promised in the future, this, this heavenly inheritance of life and glory with Jesus Christ, that fuels how they live in this present life. Uh, this hope is the, it's the source of their faith. Uh, so the, the more that they focus on this hope, the, the more they have faith in Jesus, the more that faith is cultivated in their lives. And it's the source of their love. The more they focus on this hope, the more they're equipped to love the saints. Now I wonder, what do you make of that? Honestly, what do you make of that? What do you think that's really true? Do you think focusing on heaven really impacts this life in a positive way and specifically in the way that we love others? Because I'm sure you already know that there are many today, uh, even many Christians today, who seem to be moving away from this traditional heavenly mindedness. I feel like I have to regularly warn us about this move away from being focused on heaven. And so instead of giving thanks for for people like the Colossians, there seems to be the classic criticism that no doubt you've heard probably many times. He's so heavenly minded that he's of no earthly good. He's so heavenly minded that he's just a a self-centered escapist. His head is in the clouds and thus he's helping no one on earth. But friends, it's actually that criticism which strikes me is what's truly, utterly false and contrary to Scripture. Uh, we are called to be heavenly-minded. Here's the truth. Philippians 3, we're citizens of heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter contends that the ultimate purpose of the new birth we've received from the Holy Spirit is our experience of a heavenly hope that Peter says is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And then Peter explicitly exhorts his readers to, quote, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, put your focus there. Uh, Fixate there. Set your hope fully on what you have in heaven. That should be your obsession in life. And you see, the point is we don't become of more earthly good by focusing less on heaven but by focusing more on the hope that's laid up for us there in heaven. That is what will fuel a burning faith in Jesus. That is what will fuel a sacrificial love for all the saints. Because you see, it, it, it puts to death then the selfish need to maximize my comfort and enjoyment in this life. Because my hope is in here, my focus is in here. The diamonds of this world compare nothing to the glory of heaven. And so now I can love others freely. I can love others sacrificially. Selfishness no longer dominates my life. Self-pity and regret no longer dominate my life. The pursuit of personal pleasure no longer dominates my life. Why? Because I have a glorious hope laid up for me in heaven. And it's guaranteed. It is the hope of seeing Jesus face to face and enjoying his beauty forever. If you want a good example of this, uh, think back to our study of Hebrews last year. The situation in Hebrews was that some of the the church members there had been imprisoned, and the rest were faced with the decision to either go into hiding and save themselves, or to go visit their brothers and sisters in prison and risk losing their life and their possessions. Uh, Hebrews 10.34 describes what they did and why. You had compassion on those imprisoned. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. In other words, it was their their hope in a heavenly glory, that better and lasting possession that drove them to love. To love not their possessions and, and to love not their own lives and to love not their own comfort, but to love the saints. And so, friends, may I suggest to you that whatever problems there may be with Christianity today, that it's most certainly not because Christians are too heavenly minded. I mean, how many Christians do you really know who are genuinely fixated on heaven? How many Christians do you know who are genuinely living for heavenly glories to come? Friends, the problem for most Christians isn't that they're too heavenly minded, it's that they're too worldly minded. Fixated on their jobs, fixated on making money, fixated on taking vacations, fixated on enjoying concerts, fixated on pursuing comfort. And so it's not that they're obsessed with heaven, but that they're obsessed with the world. And when that's the case, well, there's very little faith and very little love to be celebrated. But thanks be to God, that wasn't the case with those in Christ at Colossae. They had a true heavenly mindedness that brought about a radical earthly good. And, brothers and sisters, let me ask you again should we not want that? Is that not a remarkable community? That faith and love being fueled by a heavenly hope, carried out in the identity of saints and faithful brothers in Christ with God as our Father. That's the remarkable fruit that was being produced in the lives of those at Colossae. So let's come then to that critical question, how? How exactly did all of this happen? Uh, What was it that produced this kind of hope that in turn fueled this kind of faith in Jesus and this kind of love for all the saints? Well, as we've already noted, it was the message of the gospel. Uh, Because it's the message of the gospel that tells us about this heavenly hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, This is the unfolding logic of this passage. Uh, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, of this hope that's laid up for you in heaven, you have heard before in the word of the truth the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It's the gospel that tells us of the hope that we have laid up for us in heaven, and so when that gospel is preached and when it's heard, when it's when it's understood, when it's believed, that then is what changes lives and produces a kind of faith and love worth celebrating. Now, we're not given a full definition of the gospel here in these opening verses. That's that's going to come to us a little bit later in this chapter. But there are a few words here that point us to the content of it. Uh, One, the gospel is the word of the truth. Okay, So it's a word, it's a message. And it's a true word. Uh, It's a true message. It's not myth, it's not a fictional story, it's true. Indeed, it is the truth. Second, it's a true word about the grace of God. Uh, the true message of the gospel is all about God's grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 6, what the Colossians understood when the gospel was preached to them was the grace of God in truth. So, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, perhaps not terribly familiar with, the, with the go- what the gospel message is, uh, these are two good things to know about it. It's true, and it's about God's grace. Uh, the truth is that we're all sinners who've rebelled against God. And because God is infinitely holy and good, we deserve his eternal punishment. And yet God created a way for us to be saved from his punishment and to be forgiven of our sin. And that way has nothing to do with anything that we could earn or deserve or achieve. Rather, it's entirely based on who Jesus is and on what Jesus has done. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came into this world and who died on the cross for our sins. And then God raised him from the dead. And so anyone who now puts their faith in Jesus can be forgiven and saved and thus have the hope of eternal life in heaven. And all of that is by grace. It's a gift from God to anyone who will believe. And so, friend, it's a gift of God's grace to you if you too will believe. And that's the gospel. Uh, That's the true word that came to these residents at Colossae in which brought about this radical change in their lives. And of course, as we read here in verse 6, it didn't come only to them. Uh, This wasn't just some local phenomenon. It was going out to the whole known world in the first century. Throughout the Roman Empire and beyond, there were towns and villages and cities in which could now be found saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Galatia and at Philippi and at Thessalonica and even at Rome itself. Why? Because people like Epaphras... And people like Paul and Timothy, these these faithful servants of Christ, were fulfilling God's calling upon their life to take this message and to teach it to others. And so you see what happened then is men like Epaphras spoke this word of the truth. The, The gospel of God's grace is that the Holy Spirit of God took that word and he changed the lives of these people, giving them a new identity and a new hope and a whole new way of life. And thus the fundamental answer to the question of how exactly did all of this take place The fundamental answer is God. It was God who did this through the faithful teaching of his gospel word as delivered by servants and ministers of Christ. And so Paul is only an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. Epaphras' report, verse 8, is that the love shown by these saints at Colossae is a love in the Spirit, which is to say their love has been animated and directed by the Spirit they're able to love in such a way because they're operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Which, of course, is why Paul thanks God for the fruit that he sees growing in their lives. Don't you find that interesting? Uh, They're acting in faith. They're acting in love. But Paul doesn't thank them. He thanks God. Isn't that interesting? Why is that the case? Well, consider, have you ever received a gift from a friend... And then thanked a different friend for the gift that was given by this friend. Jim gives you a gift, you turn to Mark, you say, Thank you, Mark, for that gift. No, you don't do that. That's not what we do. We we, we thank the person who's responsible for giving us the gift. And so you see, it's quite revealing that Paul doesn't thank the Colossians for the good things that are going on in their lives. Why? Because it's not their work, it's God's doing. And so they don't get the credit, they don't get the thanks. Because it's God who's produced these things in their lives. And again, how has he done it? He's done it through the Holy Spirit, as the true message of the gospel of his grace has been clearly taught by the faithful servant, Epaphras. That's the how of this remarkable community. Now, why? Why exactly is Paul writing to tell them about these things? Well, this in one sense is the question we'll explore as we move through the rest of this letter. But the short answer for us this morning is that Paul's writing these things to encourage them. He's writing to encourage them by sharing with them the reports he's receiving from Epaphras about all the good things that he sees taking place in their lives. And so he wants them to be encouraged and assured that God really is at work in them. But there's more to it than just that. He also wants to assure them that the reason for this evident fruit in their lives is indeed God's working through the truth of the gospel message of His grace to us in Jesus. In other words, you see, he doesn't want them to have any doubts about the truth and the power of the gospel. Because the situation is such that there are tempting voices all around them telling them that they need something more. Uh, Telling them that that the gospel of God's grace isn't enough to sustain them in this world. And so Paul, he's saying to them, Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, with all the authority that God has given me as an apostle, I want you to know and experience God's grace and peace. And so I need you to know that I'm I'm so grateful to God because there's evident spiritual fruit in your life that's visible to those around you. Praise God for that. But do you not remember how all this happened? It happened because Epaphras came to you and taught you the gospel. And you heard that message, and you understood it, and you learned it. And from that day, there's been fruit growing and increasing in your life. And guess what? This is happening all over the world. Everywhere the gospel is being taught, lives and communities are being changed. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, it's the gospel. You don't need anything else, is what he's saying to them. And so friends, for us here today is those who are in Christ at New York City. All of this presents, I think, some important considerations for our own lives. So as we close, consider, do you have the true message of the gospel of God's grace? Have you understood and learned the hope that's laid up for you in heaven because of what Jesus has done for you? And if so, what difference has that made in your life? You know, if you find yourself disappointed in your Christian walk with the Lord it's not because you need something beyond the gospel. It's because you need more of the same gospel. The grace of God given to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is everything we need to live a life of faith and love as God set apart holy people in this world. There is no other gospel. There is no other gospel for this whole world. So take encouragement and assurance from that. The gospel, when it's genuinely heard and and understood and learned, is producing fruit throughout every part of the world, regardless of the cultural and societal context into which it goes. And friends, it's been doing that throughout history. Listen, it's not insignificant that well-known historians, even those who aren't necessarily professing Christians, can nonetheless honestly look at the history of the world and admit the overwhelming impact for good that Christianity, by and large, has had upon different societies. The gospel of God's grace really does change things. It imports a whole new ethic, a whole new way of life, one that's marked by faith and love and hope. The Holy Spirit of God works through the gospel message as it's taught and believed. And he's been doing it throughout history, throughout the world, for good. And so that perhaps raises another consideration for each of us. How do you keep the message of the gospel central in your life. We must understand it wasn't that the Colossians only needed the gospel at the start of their lives in order to become Christians. Rather, it was the gospel that was producing continual fruit in their lives in an ongoing way. And the same is true for us. We, We don't start with the good news of Jesus Christ, feel like we've mastered it, and then move on to other things. I mean, again, that's, that's precisely the false teaching that Paul is going to address later in this letter. No, it's, it's really quite the opposite. What Christianity is about is hearing and believing the true gospel message every day. That because of the grace of God in Christ, I have an eternity of joy with God that is secured for me. So listen, we need to continue to not just hear the gospel, but to, as Paul says here, learn it learn the gospel because in one sense, you never stop learning it. The depth of it, the beauty of it, the comprehensive nature of it, you'll never master it. I mean, it's too great, it's too big, it's too wonderful. And so we get the privilege of spending our lives daily learning the gospel. So keep reminding yourself of it. Keep studying it. If you want a practical way to do that, maybe consider reading Ephesians 1 for a whole month. And every day, just remind yourself of God's grace to you in Jesus and of who you are in Christ and of what awaits you in heaven. And then finally, here this morning, we'll close with this. Uh, We might do well to consider what it is that we prioritize when we pray to God and give thanks to Him. Because a true gospel focus and understanding will lead to prayers filled with thanksgiving for the gospel fruit that we see in God's people. Okay, so before you leave here today, uh, here's what I think you should do. Uh, you should look around this church. You should look around the people who are sitting here in this room. Don't do it now. Don't, don't start looking at people now. Do, do it later. Be, be subtle about it. Be kind of inconspicuous. And take some mental notes of God's powerful working through the gospel in people's lives for which you can give thanks to God this week. For example, perhaps note how so many around you are leaning the whole of their lives onto Jesus. And note the sacrificial love that many in this room regularly display. Perhaps note someone whose commitment to the Lord you've seen deepen recently. Or think of one of the Sunday school teachers who just exhibits extraordinary spirit-produced patience with his or her class of children. Or someone whose acts of kindness and hospitality are just too numerous to even mention. Or someone who tirelessly works to disciple others in this church, just regularly meeting up with others, reading the Bible with them, praying with them, checking in with them. Or someone who's always so faithful in trusting the Lord, no matter the difficult circumstances, going through immense trials, and yet unwavering in their trust in the Lord. Or someone who exhibits a godly otherworldliness because their focus is so clearly on the hope laid up for them in heaven. Or someone who, despite the demands of work and family life, faithfully, boldly, and lovingly proclaims the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. Friends, I can think very clearly of people in this church who match all of these descriptions and more. Indeed, I had you in mind when I was thinking of them. God has been very kind. He's been very gracious to us. Let's stay focused on the gospel. Let's keep looking for gospel fruit and thank God when we see it. And so who in this church will you give thanks to God for this week? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for every member of this church. Lord, I thank you that in your providence you have called us together. At this time and in this place, to be your ambassadors in this world. Oh Lord, we look forward to the hope of heaven. We thank you for the promise that it is secure for us that hope, that one day we will see Jesus face to face, we will bask in his glory forever. Lord, help us to set our hope fully on that. And the Lord, out of that, will you draw forth from us deep faith in Christ and a sacrificial love for one another, that you would be honored and glorified. Lord, keep us focused on the gospel. Help us to daily learn it and believe it. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask for your help in these areas. In Jesus' name, amen.